As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello friends, I'm Rick Warren and welcome to Spurgeon's Sermons. This is the official podcast brought to you by Premier and Spurgeon's College. You know, the teachings of Charles Spurgeon have had a personal impact on my life in a profound way and I'm confident they'll do the same for you. So get ready to be challenged, equipped and guided by Charles Spurgeon who is universally regarded as the greatest English preacher in the history of the church. The Dream of Pilate's Wife, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, part one. When he was sat down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 19. I earnestly wished to pursue the story of our Saviour's trials previous to his crucifixion. But when I sat down to study the subject, I found myself altogether incapable of the exercise. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. My emotions grew so strong and my sense of our Lord's grief became so extremely vivid that I felt I must waive the subject for a time. I could not watch with him another hour, and yet I could not leave the hallowed scene. It was, therefore, a relief to meet with the episode of Pilate's wife and her dream. It enables me to continue the thread of my narrative, and yet to relax the extreme tension of the feelings caused by a near view of the master's grief and shame. My spirit failed before the terrible sight. I thought I saw him brought back from Herod, where the men of war had set him at naught. I followed him through the streets again as the cruel priests pushed through the crowd and hastened him back to Pilate's hall. I thought I heard them in the streets, electing Barabbas the robber to be set free, instead of Jesus the saviour. And I detected the first rising of that awful cry, crucify, crucify which they shrieked out from their bloodthirsty throats. And there he stood, who loved me and gave himself for me, like a lamb in the midst of wolves, with none to pity and none to help him. The vision overwhelmed me, especially when I knew that the next stage would be that Pilate, who had exculpated him by declaring, I find no fault in him, would give him over to the tormentors that he might be scourged, that the mercenary soldiery would crown him with thorns and mercilessly insult him, and that he would be brought forth to the people 
and announced to them with that heart-rending word, Behold the man. Was there ever sorrow like unto his sorrow? We leave the master a while to look at this dream of Pilate's wife, which is only spoken of once in the scriptures, and then by Matthew. I know not why that evangelist only should have been commissioned to record it. Perhaps he alone heard of it, but the one record is sufficient for our faith and long enough to furnish food for meditation. We receive the story as certified by the Holy Spirit. Pilate, throughout his term of office, had grossly misbehaved himself. He had been an unjust and unscrupulous ruler of the Jews. The Galileans and the Samaritans both felt the terror of his arms, for he did not hesitate to massacre them at the slightest sign of revolt. And among the Jews themselves, he had sent men with daggers into the midst of the crowds at the great gatherings, and so had cut off those who were obnoxious to him. Gain was his object, and pride ruled his spirit. At the time when Jesus of Nazareth was brought before him, a complaint against him was on the way to Tiberius the emperor, and he feared lest he should be called to account for his oppressions, extortions, and murders. His sins at this moment were beginning to punish him. As Job would word it, the iniquities of his heels compassed him about. One terrible portion of the penalty of sin is its power to force a man to commit yet further iniquity. Pilate's transgressions were now howling around him like a pack of wolves. He could not face them, and he had not grace to flee to the one great refuge. But his fears drove him to flee before them, and there was no way apparently open for him but that which led him into yet deeper abominations. He knew that Jesus was without a single fault. And yet, since the Jews clamoured for his death, he felt that he must yield to their demands, or else they would raise another accusation against himself, namely that he was not loyal to the sovereignty of Caesar, for he had allowed one to escape who had called himself a king. If he had behaved justly, he would not have been afraid of the chief priests and scribes. Innocence is brave, but guilt is cowardly. Pilate's old sins found him out and made him weak in the presence of the ignoble crew whom otherwise he would have driven from the judgment seat. He had power enough to have silenced them but he had not sufficient decision of character to end the contention. The power was gone from his mind because he knew that his conduct would not bear investigation and he dreaded the loss of his office, which he held only for his own ends. See there with pity that scornful but vacillating creature wavering in the presence of men who were more wicked than himself and more determined in their purpose. The fell determination of the wicked priests caused hesitating policy to quail in their presence, and Pilate was driven to do 
what he would gladly have avoided. The manner and the words of Jesus had impressed Pilate. I say the manner of Jesus, for his matchless meekness must have struck the governor as being a very unusual thing in a prisoner. He had seen in captured Jews the fierce courage of fanaticism, but there was no fanaticism in Christ. He had also seen in many prisoners the meanness which will do or say anything to escape from death. But he saw nothing of that about our Lord. He saw in him unusual gentleness and humility combined with majestic dignity. He beheld submission blended with innocence. This made Pilate feel how awful goodness is. He was impressed. He could not help being impressed with this unique sufferer. Besides, our Lord had before him witnessed a good confession. You remember how we considered it the other day. And though Pilate had huffed it off with the pert question, what is truth? And had gone back into the judgment hall. Yet there was an arrow fixed within him which he could not shake off. It may have been mainly superstition, but he felt an awe of one whom he half expected to be an extraordinary personage. He felt that he himself was placed in a very extraordinary position, being asked to condemn one whom he knew to be perfectly innocent. His duty was clear enough. He could never have had a question about that. But duty was nothing to Pilate in comparison with his own interests. He would spare the just one if he could do so without endangering himself. But his cowardly fears lashed him on to the shedding of innocent blood. At the very moment when he was vacillating, when he had offered to the Jews the choice of Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth, at that very moment, I say, when he had taken his seat upon the bench and was waiting for their choice, there came from the hand of God a warning to him, a warning which would forever make it clear that if he condemned Jesus, it would be done voluntarily by his own guilty hands. Jesus must die by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and yet it must be by wicked hands that he is crucified and slain. And hence, Pilate must not sin in ignorance. A warning to Pilate came from his own wife concerning her morning's dream, a vision of mystery and terror, warning him not to touch that just person. For, said she, I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. There are times in most men's lives when though they have been wrong, yet they have not quite been set on mischief, but have come to a pause and have deliberated as to their way. And then God in great mercy has sent them a caution and has set up a danger signal, bidding them stop in their mad career ere they plunged themselves finally into irretrievable ruin. Somewhere, 
In that direction lies the subject of our present discourse. Oh, that the Spirit of God may make it useful to many. And first, I call your attention to the cooperation of providence with the work of God. I call it the work of God to warn men against sin. And I call your attention to providence working with it to bring the preventatives and cautions of divine mercy home to men's minds. For first, observe the providence of God in sending this dream. If anything beneath the moon may be thought to be exempt from law and to be the creature of pure chance, surely it is a dream. True, there were in old time dreams in which God spoke to men prophetically. But ordinarily, they are the carnival of thought, a maze of mental states, a dance of disorder. The dreams which would naturally come to the wife of a Roman governor would not be likely to have much of tenderness or conscience in them and would not in all probability of themselves run in the line of mercy. Dreams ordinarily are the most disorderly of phenomena. And yet it seems that they are ordered of the Lord. I can well understand that every drop of spray which flashes from the wave when it dashes against the cliff has its appointed orbit as truly as the stars of heaven. But the thoughts of men appear to be utterly lawless, especially the thoughts of men when deep sleep falls upon them. As well might one foretell the flight of a bird as the course of a dream. Such wild fantasies seem to be ungoverned and ungovernable. Many things operate naturally to fashion a dream. Dreams frequently depend upon the condition of the stomach, upon the meat and drink taken by the sleeper before going to rest. They often owe their shape to the state of the body or the agitation of the mind. Dreams may no doubt be caused by that which transpires in the chamber of the house, a little movement of the bed caused by passing wheels, or the tramp of a band of men, or the passing of a domestic across the floor, or even the running of a mouse behind the wainscot, may suggest and shape a dream. Any slight matter affecting the senses at such time may raise within the slumbering mind a mob of strange ideas. Yet whatever may have operated in this lady's case, the hand of providence was in it all, and her mind, though fancy-free, wandered nowhere but just according to the will of God, to effect the divine purpose. She must dream just so, and know how else, and that dream must be of such and such an order, and none other. Even dreamland knows no god but God. And even phantoms and shadows come and go at his bidding. Neither can the images of a night vision escape from the supreme authority of the Most High. See the providence of God in the fact that the dream of Pilate's wife, however caused, should be of such a form and come at such a time as this. Certain old writers trace her dream to the devil, 
who thus hoped to prevent the death of our Lord and so prevent our redemption. I do not agree with the notion, but even if it were so, I admire all the more the providence which overrules even the devices of Satan for the purposes of wisdom. Pilate must be warned so that his sentence may be his own act and deed. And that warning is given him through his wife's dream. This is the way providence works. Thank you for listening, friends. This podcast was brought to you by Premier in association with Spurgeon's College. For more Christian podcasts, sermons, and music, head back to the website premier.plus and sign in for free. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.